Good morning, everyone. How are y'all doing this morning? It's exciting to be here this morning. I've got wonderful news, a couple of brief announcements. I'm not high-tech enough to do the PowerPoint. I tried that one time on a Wednesday night lesson, and it was terrible. So we're going to go the old-fashioned style this morning. We're going to go back like it was in Acts chapter 2. We're not going to have PowerPoint this morning. But I do have some wonderful announcements. We want to honor uh, Don and Dean Clark, who will be celebrating their 65th wedding anniversary on July the 11th. And for somebody like me that's just been married 15 years, what an awesome example that is to me, uh, to our young people, for those of you that are thinking about getting married, what an awesome example that is. So be sure and congratulate the Clarks on that and that wonderful accomplishment. What an example that is uh, in a world where God's first institution is constantly under attack uh, and being belittled in the eyes of men to see an accomplishment like that. I also got a, a text yesterday from David Shannon. Uh, awesome news on the stateside mission. Many of you know that many of our teens are there and also many of our members are there. 3,000 plus doors were knocked yesterday alone. The gospel meeting hadn't been started until today. And also two baptisms that we know of already. So the Lord has said that the fields are white for the harvest. And indeed they were. And uh, it's awesome to see that the Lord led us there uh, on that trip. This morning we're going to begin our uh, month-long lesson on stewardship. And many of you hear that word and you automatically think, oh no, he's going to talk about giving money. I'm going to leave that up to David next week. He's going to come in and talk about a little bit about that, finishing our series on worship uh, and how giving back a portion of what God has given us stewardship over uh, is a part of our worship, just as we just did a few minutes ago in here. But I'm not going to talk about that specifically this morning. We're going to talk about stewardship in a broad sense of what that word means in the Bible and also something in particular God has given us a very important stewardship over. If you would, turn with me in your Bibles. We'll come back to the verses that were read here in a little bit in the lesson. And turn to 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 4. We're going to read some verses out of that in just a minute. When I was at the bank the other day, I got to thinking about the little sticker in the window. If you guys have ever been through the drive-thru or gone up to the window uh, at, the, at the bank teller, you see the little sticker that says FDIC. Uh, and that, that sticker stands for Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation. It's been around since the 30s, and it was a result uh, of the government's many reactions to the Great Depression, but on bank runs. When people thought that banks would become insolvent because of the economy, and some of you guys may remember the same scare uh, in 2006, um, when people thought the banks would go out of business, people go start pulling all their money out of the banks. Well, that insurance corporation gives the, insurance, uh, gives the bank and the investor insurance for every investor at each bank he invests in, you are currently insured by the federal government for $250,000. I'm glad of that, so that'll cover about half the money I got in the bank in case anything really goes wrong. But, you know, that's a joke there. That's a joke. I don't pay ministers here that much. But it's a comforting thing because what you read in the fine print on there is you see that that dollar amount, is, it makes you feel comfortable, and it's backed by the full faith and credit of the United States government. And for some of you, that may give you cold chills. And for some of you, that may be very exciting. But understand that that's only how good it is. Tomorrow, if the United States government became insolvent, if you had a million dollars in the bank or you had a thousand dollars in the bank, you're both going to be on equal footing because it's all going to be equally worthless, just like Confederate money would have been. But we put money in the bank. We make a deposit on the full faith and credit that if something happens to that bank, the United States government, something that's only been in existence for less than 250 years, just about a quarter 
uh, the lifetime of the Roman Empire, we put that money in there and we feel safe. That if something happens to that business, we're going to have our money. We're going to talk in a minute about how God has given us a deposit that is much older than that and is backed by a much higher power. But we have stewardship over that, just like the bank has stewardship over your money. And we want to see, can God trust us with that? What does the word stewardship mean? I'm not a, I can't memorize the dictionary, so I had to write it down. It says, the responsible overseeing and protection of something worth caring for and preserving. I'm going to submit to you this morning that stewardship is not just giving. That word is not synonymous. Our contribution that you give on Sundays to the church or anytime you would give money uh, to the church is a part of your stewardship. It is not simply stewardship. The Lord has given us a responsibility over a whole lot of things beyond just the stewardship of our money. Giving is just a part of that. I got to thinking as I was preparing this lesson that one of the things in the United States I think that we don't quite understand lordship and kingship is because we live in a representative republic. We don't have a king over us. And really, when we look at examples of kings in modern politics, we don't see kings in the same role that kings would have been in a situation like in the time of Christ or in the time of Israel or the time where we see the Persian Empire or the Babylonian Empire. Most of us feel very comfortable, and I'm thankful for this freedom that we can speak evil of the king, of the president, or whoever it may be. We may talk about them ugly, we may disagree with their politics. You reverse time a couple thousand years back in history, a thousand years back in history, and that would have resulted in you being one less head after you got done talking about that. You could have been killed, you could have been in prison, you could have anything. You could have been flogged and punished for speaking evil of the king. And I thought about an example of that. If we can think about God in that way, and he is all-powerful, He is almighty and he is in charge of everything and having that reverence for him that we don't have for the leadership of men in our country and fear him, not in a scared type fear, but fear and respect and honor him that if we don't do what he says, we can look in the Bible and see that when we don't honor his word and do what he says, then punishment can come upon us. That's a biblical example of doing that. And I just wonder if the king came to you and said, hey, I'm the king, and you're going to be my steward. I'm going to give you a whole lot of possessions because I'm going off to war for a long period of time. I'm going to give you the oversight of a great deal of money. And a portion of that money every week needs to go to take care of my beloved children. I'm leaving my son and my daughter, my treasure, the heir to the throne behind with you. And you need to make sure that they're fed that they're clothed, that they got something to play with, that they're taken care of, that there's a nanny over them, that diapers are changed. And a portion of this money that I'm going to leave you stewardship over needs to go to that. Would you do that? Would you take care of the king's children? You would unless you're a fool. Because when he comes back from war and his children are emaciated and starved and their diapers hadn't been changed regularly and had anything to play with, and they say, Daddy, this guy's a terrible steward over us. What do you think that king would do to you? He'd kill you. He'd probably take your head off. You didn't take care of his children. We serve a God that created the entire universe. And he has given us stewardship over a great many things. Just one of those small things is the money that he's blessed you with. Another may be your time, your abilities, your intellect. Elders, it's the church underneath you. Deacons, it's the ministry over you. For me... 
He has given me the stewardship over a jail ministry, over the education of our children and our adults in this congregation. Each and every one of us has stewardship over what we're going to talk about this morning. So just think about that in the manner of respect. As God has given us a certain task to do and take care of his children, his creation, that which he loves, that needs to be fed and cared for and nourished. And he's given us something to do that with. He's all given us the talents and abilities to do that. And that's his word. He's left us his word and given us stewardship over it. And a great many of you that may hear me teach class very often and stuff, like, oh man, Tim Martin's going to talk about how important God's word is again. Why would I not talk about how important God's word is? Because if you think about it, it's the only thing we have to show us the will of God, his direction for the church, and the conduct of our life as Christians. And we've been given a very important task by our Lord over that, and that's to spread it. Brothers and sisters, I'm going to tell you something. If you think it's just the elder's job and the minister's job and the deacon's job to be good stewards of God's word, you are assuming that when Jesus gave the commandment to take the word and spread it to all the nations, that he was just talking to those offices which had not even yet been established in the scripture. He was telling his disciples, those that were learning from him. We are all his disciples. That commandment goes out to all of us. When we look uh, at those verses at the end of Matthew, at the end of Mark, about going out to all the nations doing that, he has given that job to each and every one of us, and God would not have given us that job if we could not fulfill it. Each and every one of you in here can fulfill the task of taking care of God's word and taking it out. Who else is going to do it? If the church is not going to spread God's word, who else is going to do it? Are we going to be like a lot of Americans and rely on the government to do everything for us? Do you think the government's going to spread God's word? Do you think the government's going to come in and teach your children about God's word? You know better than that. Do you think the elders can do it by themselves? Or do you think I can and the teachers of our children classes who are wonderful and highly educated people and great hearts can do it all by themselves? No, we know that that can't go on and happen. Each and every member is responsible for that. Timothy is told in 2 Timothy 2, 2, to take these words and entrust them to faithful men. He doesn't say just give it to the elders or just give it to the deacons that we talked about in 1 Timothy 3. Entrust it to faithful men so that they may be spread at trustworthy stewards. We look in Deuteronomy 6, 7 and we see it's the responsibility of parents to teach the word diligently to their children. Ephesians 6, 4 says that fathers are to bring up their children in the training and admonition of the Lord. That responsibility is put right on those in the home and the family. It's responsibility we see in Titus chapter 2, 1 through 8, that the older men and older women are to teach the younger men and the younger women. By the time we look at all these things in the scripture, it's everybody's responsibility to handle God's word properly. Over in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, we'll work at verses 1 and 2. It says, Let a man so consider us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mystery of God. Moreover, it is required in stewards that one be found faithful. We are stewards of the mysteries of God. And so we ask ourselves, what are these mysteries of God that Paul is referring to when he talks back to this church in Corinth? They have been given stewardship over the mysteries of God. And we as Christians have been given stewardship. The management of something that is wonderful, something that is awesome, something that is powerful, uh, and something like the definition we talked about that is worth caring for and worth preserving in talking about that. Turn over Colossians chapter 1. 
And we're going to look at verses 24 and 27. We talk about this word mysteries, and we see this used often in the Scripture to do describe the gospel of Christ, to describe the word of God. Uh, And we're going to kind of define that a little bit so we can understand what the Bible says. That mystery is no longer a mystery. It was a mystery to the people that came along and existed before the good news was brought through the apostles and through these ministers. Before this time, it was a mystery. And we'll kind of see that described uh, in, in Colossians 24 through 27. It says, I now rejoice in my sufferings for you. And fill up my flesh with what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ. For the sake of his body, which is the church, of which I became a minister, according to the stewardship from God, which was given to me for you, to fulfill the word of God. The mystery, which has been hidden from ages and from generations, but has now been revealed to his saints. To them God willed to make known what are the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which Christ in you, which is Christ in you, the hope of the glory. Paul has suffered for being a minister uh, of the gospel. He, he has given his life uh, in doing that. And for us, I ask you a question, you know, what do we give in our stewardship of these mysteries which have now been revealed to people? And we look in verse 25 and it says to fulfill the word of God. The meaning of those words mean to cause to abound or make known. Fulfilling the word of God is to cause to abound or make known. It is our job for the word of God to be abounding, to grow, to be broad, and for us to make it known uh, to others. Why was this mystery revealed? We see there, and then also in Colossians 2, 1 uh, through 3, that it's revealed so that the whole world can hear the good news of Jesus Christ. Matthew 28 and Mark 16, we say that, tell us to preach the gospel to all the nations and to every creature. That's everybody, right? That's anybody, regardless of the color of their skin, regardless of their religious heritage, of their ethnic heritage, of their beliefs, is to carry it to all nations and to all people, to every creature that God has ever made. In Colossians 2, as we finish up what we were just reading in verses 1 through 3, it says, For I want you to know what a great conflict I have for you, he's talking about those in Colossae, and for those in Laodicea, for as many have not seen my face in the flesh, that their hearts may be encouraged being knit together in love and attaining to all riches of the full assurance of our understanding to the knowledge of the mystery of God, both of the Father and of Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. A full assurance of our understanding. We have to be able to understand God's word and be able to take it out. Therefore, it's incumbent upon us to study God's word, to know what it has to say. That's part of your stewardship. When you go look at your stewardship, you're going to have to take care of the things that have been placed earned to you. If I'm going to be a shepherd, I've got to know something about sheep. I've got to understand something about their care, about their needs, about where they need to eat, what they need to eat, what they need to consume. Our elders need to know that about the flock that they are among. We need to know something about God's word. We need to know as much as we can about God's word if we're going to be teachers of it. And that's a very, very important uh, thing that we'll come back to. Flip back to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. In 1 Corinthians 9, Paul has kind of been defending his apostleship to the church in Corinth. We have the famous statement about not muzzling an ox while it's treading out the grain. Paul has been taken care of by the churches that he goes and preaches to uh, in, in, in chapter 9. And we look at verses 16 and 17 in 1 Corinthians 9. It says, For if I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of. 
for necessity is laid upon me. Yes, woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do this willingly, I have a reward. But if against my will, I have been entrusted with a stewardship. He's been entrusted with a stewardship from God to spread the gospel. And he says, woe is me if I don't do that. He says, I have to do this. Sometimes it's even against my will uh, to do this. And I thought about that as I was reading that. I was like, well, it's strange that Paul would say that this would be against my will. Because we would think Paul would always be willing to go and preach the gospel. And I hope we would describe ourselves as people that would be willing to go and preach the gospel to just about anybody. But are we? Do we do that? Does prejudice ever enter into our heart, into our mind? Do we ever think, well, those people don't deserve the gospel? I'm not going to carry it to them because they won't listen. Most likely, if you're describing people like that, they probably need the gospel uh, worse than anybody. We know that Paul had a hard road. He didn't live an easy life. He left, what I'm going to say from studying the Bible, was a prominent and affluent family. And he left a good life. He was a member of a ruling council. He was probably a very important individual. He describes himself as a Hebrew of Hebrews. He learned from Gamaliel, which would not have been a cheap and easy education to obtain. So Paul left this, and it may not have always been his will to do so. Turn over to Acts chapters 26. We'll talk about that purpose that Paul was given. And as we think about this, don't just think about it as God giving instruction to Paul. Don't just think about it that way. Who has been entrusted to preach the gospel? Was it just Paul and that was the end of it? Or are we going to ignore Jesus' commandment to us to go out and preach the gospel to all the world? That's to each and every Christian. That doesn't necessarily mean that you have to put a coat and tie on and come up to the pulpit every Sunday morning and do a job as a professional, uh, like the much better at this David Shannon than I am uh, type individual does. But you can preach the word without doing it for a living or doing it from the top of a pulpit You can preach it every day in your life. In this story in Acts chapter 26, Paul is relating to Agrippa, King Agrippa, and the Roman governor Festus, the story of his conversion on the road to Damascus. And it's interesting what we see here uh, as we look at verses 16 and 17. This is just after Jesus was speaking to him on the road. And we don't have this account earlier in Acts. We don't have these words uh, at the first account we have of Paul's conversion. But here he says, and we'll back up to 15, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand on your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to make you a minister and a witness of both the things which you have seen and the things which I will yet reveal to you. He was supposed to use the things that he has seen and the things that he will yet reveal to him. And we learn elsewhere in the scriptures that the word of God was revealed to Paul. He didn't learn it all from a group of men. He wasn't trained completely by Peter when he was in Jerusalem with him. It was revealed to him. And the result of that we see in 18. Why did Jesus want him to do this? Why does Jesus want us to do this? To open their eyes in order to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Opening their eyes. Do you realize that some people in the world have no idea what the gospel of Christ is? That they don't have a feeling in their lives that says, I'm sinful, I'm doing wrong. Not everybody who is without Christ feels like they're disobeying the almighty God of the universe. They're just living life. They may be moral people. They may be law-abiding people. They may be people that are good husbands, good mothers, good Good spouses, good 
business people, honest people. They don't cheat on their taxes. They don't lie. They don't cheat. They don't steal. They do better than a lot of people in church, and they don't even gossip. So they don't have any idea that they're apart from Christ. So opening their eyes, many don't know that they're separated from God. Turning from a despair of darkness into the hope of light in Christ. I've looked into a lot of eyes in jail the past 12 years that I've gone up to Wilson County Jail. And I've seen some eyes where there's a little glimmer of hope. And there's some eyes where they think there's no way that they can overcome the life that they're in. If you want to find somebody that's at the end of their road, that's at the end of their rope, find somebody who's been and out of jail for the past 10 or 15 years of their life. That think they can't overcome something. That all they see is darkness but are unwilling to see that hope of that light in Christ. There are many people out there that are in despair for that. And releasing them from the grip of Satan and into the comforting arm of Jesus Christ. I tell people, there's more to being a Christian. There's more reward to being a Christian than just going to heaven. And that's an awesome reward that we can't comprehend. But the reward of having a family surround you, even if you don't have an earthly family, even if your parents have forsaken you or you don't have parents or you don't have loved ones or good friends, you can find them in the body of Christ. Now, there are some that are in the body or claim to be in the body, at least, that don't act that way. But I know hundreds here that do. And I'm thankful for my salvation, not only that I'll be delivered in the end from the punishment that I deserve, but also that I'm surrounded by brothers and sisters in Christ who want to serve God and who love me and are supportive of my family and that I can trust and count on to do those things. Why do we share that? So that they'll receive forgiveness of sins and the inheritance of heaven's glory. Man, I can't tell you what heaven looks like. I've never, and I'm going to confess maybe something improper here, but I've never even studied Revelation in debt. I can't comprehend that stuff's a little bit too meaty for me just yet in my life. But I know this, heaven's not going to be like this filthy earth. It's going to be an awesome place that I can't even comprehend what it looks like, that there's feeble words in the Bible that try to talk about, you know, how beautiful it is and what it looks like. And we can't even put that in comprehension. I'm excited about that one day. And I'm excited that I'm going to be there with many other souls that I've come to know on this earth. Don't you want to be excited about taking this stewardship, this responsibility that we've been given to save people from a torment of a place that has nothing but nasty and evil words to describe it in hell and take those people to that awesome place that's so beautiful that human words can't even describe it. We've got to have that same purpose that Paul did. I think about Jonah. Sometimes I'm guilty of this, that I feel like maybe those people are just too far gone to talk to about Christ or because they're part of another religion uh, that I've been groomed to dislike or another ethnic group that I've been groomed to dislike that I'm resistant to take them to them. I think about Jonah. When you think about the story of Jonah, in Jonah's time, Assyria was the major power in the Middle East. Nineveh was the seat of that government power. And Jonah was asked by God to go to a land of people that have done nothing but harass Israel and take a message of repentance to them. I know why Jonah didn't want to go. Number one, if you look at a map, Nineveh is a long haul from Palestine. It's a long way from where Jonah got on the ship and tried to flee away from God's word. It is a people that less than 30 years later would come and destroy Israel and carry away and disperse its citizens. In a way, when Jonah finally fulfilled God's word and went to Nineveh and they repented and that city wasn't destroyed by God, it essentially preserved those people to come and conquer Israel not much longer after that. So I can understand why Jonah didn't want to take it to him. He probably didn't think they deserved it. 
They haven't been treating God's people very well. Why would I go there and preach repentance? Sometimes we don't preach God's word because we're worried we'll be looked at different socially. That maybe we'll be ostracized from the groups uh, that we want to be a part of. Maybe we'll be made fun of around the water cooler. Maybe we'll get a lot of resistance. For our youth and for our children, this is probably even worse than doing that. But I submit to you that being socially ostracized cannot be worse than being whipped 39 times on five separate occasions to being beaten with rods three times, from being naked, from being cold, from being hungry, from being shipwrecked, all those things that Paul went through and counted all those worldly things he possessed for that but lost for Christ. You know, he was from a affluent family. Why would he leave that to go through all that he did for a period of probably nearly 30 years that he dealt with preaching the gospel? Because he was given a stewardship from God uh, to do those things. Turn to, back to our verses that were read in 2 Timothy chapter uh, 1. We'll conclude here in just a moment. In 2 Timothy chapter 1 and 13, the scriptures say that we should hold fast the pattern of sound words which you've heard from me in faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. That good thing which was committed to you, keep by the Holy Spirit who dwells in us. When Paul writes this letter to Timothy... He's in Roman imprisonment. This is his last inspired letter that we think chronologically we have in the scriptures. He's passing the torch to Timothy. And he tells him to guard what he's been given. Keep it. This hold fast the pattern of sound words. If we look at the Greek words that back that up, we could reword it. It says, keep a firm grip on the example of healthy decrees given to you by God. We see kind of the same example in 1 Timothy chapter 6 and 20. He says, hold fast. Grip a hold of that thing that you have, that good deposit that you've given. It was a good, and that word means beautiful or precious, honorable, noteworthy. The word of God was committed to Timothy. He'd given Timothy tremendous responsibilities in 1 Timothy to find and appoint elders, men that were qualified, to, to appoint deacons, men that were qualified according to God's word. Not what Timothy thought men ought to be, but what God's word said that ought to be. To find faithful men to commit the words of God to so that they can carry on. And throughout First and Second Timothy to oppose false doctrine that was going to come in the last days. I'm not one of those people who believes false doctrine is going to come here in the next 100 years, 50 years, 25 years. False doctrine has been, been taught in Timothy's time and ever since then. He wouldn't have told Timothy... Something was coming if Timothy wasn't going to experience it. So it's a lie when people say, well, one day, right before Jesus comes, people are going to be teaching false doctrine. I encourage you to watch the news sometime or watch some of these religious channels and see what's being preached uh, in other places, in other so-called Christian groups, and see if you can find it backed up in the Bible. There are people being carried away by words that they want to hear and doctrines that tickle their ears today. And it was being done in Timothy's time, too. Otherwise, there'd been no reason to warn Timothy about it. This word committed means a sacred deposit. We go back to what we were talking about at the beginning. A sacred deposit or trust given to one for faithful keeping. God has given us his word. I don't have Jesus to walk around with in the flesh. I can't even show people a, a picture of the man. We know that his bones aren't laying in the ground somewhere. Where we can go like some religious leaders and say, this is the bones of so-and-so. I can prove that he existed. I don't have the ability to work miracles to show people the love of God. I don't need it. I have a miracle here. 
The inspiration of the apostles to write down God's word is a miraculous and awesome thing. It is a movement of the Holy Spirit just as the healing of the blind was or just as the making the lame to walk was. We have that awesome gift of doing that. We see the same letter in 2 Timothy 2.15. Paul gives us instruction that gives us the ability to be good stewards. Be diligent to yourself. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. A worker who does not need to be ashamed. We stand before God one day. My hope for myself is that I'm not ashamed when he says, what did you do with the stewardship of the word that I gave you to teach to people? What did you do with it? I'm not going to be ashamed. And I'm going to be ashamed, I hope, because I'm going to make the best effort I can to rightly divide the word of truth. I don't want to learn the Bible incorrectly. And that's a whole other lesson of stuff. But if I learn the Bible incorrectly and I misunderstand the Bible, the greatest risk I have is that I transfer that misunderstanding to someone else when I share that with them. I can inadvertently be a false teacher if I don't understand the Bible. And that means you need to study and read the Bible for yourself. You need to find resources that make sense. I don't say that commentaries are perfect because they're made by men. Talk to people that know God's word. Study from them. Pay attention in Bible class. Learn. Research the Bible. Understand it. If not, you cannot be rightly dividing that word of truth and you risk being a false teacher. We can't, if I walk into my house and I went and bought a house the other day, for instance, if I went and bought a house and I said, you know what, I don't want any appliances or any furniture in this house. I'm not going to put any appliances. It's just going to be a frame house with some cabinets, uh, no carpet on the floors or anything. How useful would that home be for my family? I'm not going to put anything in it. We're just going to have rooms and empty air and nothing to do in it. 316, 2 Timothy 316 says that the God-breathed scripture is profitable for doctrine, which is instruction, for reproof, which is evidence, for correction, which means a straightening, and for instruction, that word means a complete education in righteousness, which righteousness is a condition acceptable to God, that the man of God may be perfect or complete, thoroughly equipped. And that word means furnished, like furnishing the house for every good work. You cannot be useful to God if you don't know his word. We cannot do what God has given us to do. We can't be stewards that he's commanded us to do if we do not study the Bible. It's not going to come into your mind because there's 15 Bibles sitting on your coffee table. You have to learn and study God's word or you cannot be equipped for a good work. I don't know anywhere else in the Bible where it says a man can just pray and he's going to be thoroughly equipped for good work. Or a man can just attend worship service and he's going to be thoroughly equipped for every good work. The Bible says that the God-breathed scripture is profitable so that the man of God can be complete. It's like the empty house. It's going back to the empty house. As we close and I think about our invitation, I was thinking about an example of good stewardship of God's word from one of my favorite people in the Bible. Next to Jesus, my most awesome and favorite hero in the Bible is Moses. He was given the word of God directly from the mouth of God in the presence of God on Mount Sinai. And he was entrusted by God to instruct the people in that word. And I believe from the scriptures that Moses did so. He even took the time in Deuteronomy, which means the second law, to give it to that next generation before they walked into the promised land. He did a good job. And he sinned in not obeying God and striking the rock instead of speaking to it. And because of that, he could enter the promised land. 
But Moses' life didn't end in a horrible dungeon and punishment because of what he disobeyed God. Moses was buried by the hand of God on Mount Nebo. He saw the promised land. He knew those people were going in. His job was complete. He had shared the word with them and warned them. If you do what this word says, God will make you prosperous and keep these nations off your back. He'll bless you. He's given you a land with cities you didn't build, with fields you didn't plant. It's a ready-made civilization that he's taken you into. And then he left this world. I think Moses was a good steward of the word of God. Those that followed after Moses and Joshua and after that leadership left, we see that Israel constantly sloughed off of obeying God. And a judge would come along and straighten them back up for a certain number of years. And then they'd fall away and they'd be conquered. They'd be harassed by their enemies. And then we see in the books of the kings that good kings would come and go. Now think about Hezekiah, which we can see an example in the book of First Kings. Hezekiah was a good steward of God's word. The Bible says that Hezekiah did all the things that were commanded in the book of the law of Moses. Two generations later, that book of the law couldn't even be found. Hezekiah's son and grandson, Manasseh and Ammon, did evil in the sight of God. Then along came Josiah. At eight years old, he takes the throne. In the 18th year of his reign, he has somebody go clean up that temple. Go straighten up God's temple. Let's rebuild it. Let's repair it. Because it had been filled up with idols and nonsense during the reign of his father and grandfather. And in that course, they found the book of the law. And Josiah read it. And when he read it, he tore his clothes because he was ashamed of God's people. He was ashamed they weren't doing what they were supposed to do. And he implemented the worship that they needed to, the holidays that God had commanded them to observe. And he did those things. But I think Josiah failed in one thing. I don't think he did a good job of passing that on to his children. Because after Josiah died, just two or three kings later, his son did evil and everyone after him did evil. And we see that eventually they're conquered and destroyed by the Babylonians in the middle of the 6th century. They're coming or hauled away to captivity. And Josiah even made a covenant with God that says, I'm going to keep your word. And God said to Josiah, I'm not going to punish this land in your time. I'll preserve. You'll have peace in your time. But after he leaves, he doesn't. I don't know if Josiah did a good job or he didn't. But I ask you, if you're a Christian today, have you been a good steward of what God has given you? And he's given you many things. But most important gift he has given us is his revealed word, the mouth that spoke the universe into existence. We have his word right here in this scripture. The same words, the same teachings. Have you been a good steward of that? I can't stay up here and say that I've always done a good job of being a good steward of that. But I assure you that I take my stewardship over his word of even higher and greater importance than I do my stewardship over all the money that he's given me. It's not my money that I put back in the offering plate. It's God's money. It's God's furniture sitting in my house. It's God's roof over my head. God has given me the employment, my wife, the employment that we have. Everything we have is from him. And his word is of high, high importance. If that hasn't been of high importance in your life, of studying it and spreading it, I ask you to reconsider that. And I ask you to make it a priority in your life. Know what you're going to teach. I can't go be an accounting professor because I don't know accounting. I can't go be a Bible teacher and preacher if I don't know the Bible. If you're here this morning, perhaps you're visiting with us, perhaps you've been attending here for a long time, and the Word of God, you've heard it, and it's making you want to tear your clothes because your eyes have been opened. You want to get away from that grip of darkness and that grip of sin, and you want to come and put on this Christ who's given you this beautiful Word and a family to be a part of that will put its arms around you and care for you. We'll disappoint you. 
From time to time, men will disappoint one another. But God's family won't disappoint you all the time. We won't treat you like the world treats you out there. I invite you into a wonderful, wonderful life here on earth and a promise of life outside of that. God invites you to that, not Tim Martin. His word does so. If you have any needs that we could help you with, please don't hesitate to come as we stand and we sing.